The following pre-recorded program is paid for by SSI Guardian. Welcome to Living Well with Dr. Peg with your host, psychologist and author, Dr. Peggy Mitchell-Clark. Living Well with Dr. Peg explores a variety of mental health, wellness, and safety topics brought to you by SSI Guardian. Living Well with Dr. Peg shares effective and practical psychological strategies based on biblical principles for living well and staying safe. To listen to previous episodes, learn more about Dr. Peg's mental health and safety workshops, or to register for an upcoming VIP personal transformation retreat. Visit drpegradio.com. And now, here's your host, Dr. Peggy Mitchell Clark. Hello, listeners. Welcome back to another episode of Living Well with Dr. Peg, brought to you every week by our sponsor, SSI Guardian. We're coming to you from Denver, Colorado, and streaming around the world online and from your smartphone apps. And if you missed last week's episode or any episode of Living Well with Dr. Peg, be sure to go to drpegradio.com for the program archives. And also check out drpegradio.com for information about the show, my sponsor, and how you can take advantage of my mental health, wellness, and safety consulting services, workshops, and books. And I just want to um, make you aware of an upcoming series of events that I'm holding. Do something different for a change, personal transformation retreats. If you're ready to do something for a change and need some help, and start off the new year by investing some time in yourself to reflect on where you've been, Determine where you want to go and identify effective strategies to get you there. I'd like to invite you to attend one of these full-day private VIP individual retreats or small group retreats. And it's a time of refreshment, reflection, and concentrated strategic planning that can accelerate your personal transformation and promote lasting change in your life. Again, contact me at drpegradio.com to reserve your spot and to do something different for a change, personal transformation Retreat. Well, listeners, please welcome to the program today psychologist Dr. Matthew Stanford. He's CEO of the of the Hope and Healing Center and Institute in Houston, Texas, adjunct professor in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Baylor College of Medicine, as well as Department of Psychology at the University of Houston. And Dr. Stanford is also the author of Grace for the Afflicted a clinical and biblical perspective on mental illness, as well as the book, The Biology of Sin, Grace, Hope, and Healing for Those Who Feel Trapped. And what we're talking about today is one of the reasons I have this program on the air. And as you know, my show shares effective psychological strategies based on biblical principles for living well and staying safe. And among the many topics that we discuss is mental health. So Dr. Matthew Stanford really is the perfect guest today. Uh, Dr. Stanford, thank you so much for being on the show. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Well, just based on your book titles alone, I know this is going to be a great show. Uh, Fortunately, there are many believers who embrace psychology and who value having accurate mental health information and psychological interventions. But I'm sure you would agree Uh, In your experience, there are also so many others who think psychology and our faith in God are incompatible. And um, I've actually had people say you cannot be a Christian and a psychologist. Have have you ever heard that before, Dr. Stanford? I've had people say that same thing to me or ask me how I could be a Christian and a psychologist. So there is a subset of of the faith that uh, doesn't believe that 
mental health problems are real. They just see them as spiritual issues, not as as medical issues. Uh, there are even people in the general population that don't really appreciate them as real disorders. But certainly in the faith community, it, it has kind of a particularly ugly sense to it because people are looked at as if they have some kind of spiritual weakness or a weak faith, or perhaps they are possessed by demons. Mm. Mm-hmm. So so fa- lack of faith, I think, is a really common um, belief that you, you have depression or you're suffering from anxiety and an anxiety problem because you just don't believe you don't have enough faith. Um, or you're saying also sin would be another common belief that um, that Christians may have about mental health problems. Right. Absolutely. That you. You know, your faith is just not right, you're not mm-hmm. believing in God enough, or perhaps you're believing some wrong thing, and that's caused you to be depressed or be anxious. And, you know, the reality is is that, you know, the, the Scriptures and don't teach us, and Jesus never said that becoming a Christian was going to make your life all perfect and wonderful. Uh, I think what he did is he promised we'd have suffering, and certainly mental health problems are like any other type of illness. Uh, they're a result of the fall, and people in the faith and people outside the faith, faith struggle with them. Uh, and while faith is certainly a, a strong foundation of hope to build uh, a recovery from uh, in a mental health uh, crisis, uh, it certainly isn't uh, kind of a shield that keeps us from having mental health problems, much like faith isn't something that would keep us from having diabetes. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, people talk about Paul's thorn in the flesh. We don't really know what that was, but we certainly cannot question Paul's faith and his knowledge of the Word, and yet he suffered as well. Oh, absolutely. And there's plenty of uh, examples in the Scriptures of people who suffer pretty significantly with with uh, kind of mental health-related types of issues. David is tremendously mm-hmm. depressed most of his reign. I mean, you know, we like to think about David dancing before the ark, but... We, we forget that the majority of his psalms are laments, you know, mm-hmm. where he's crying out to God. God won't, He doesn't feel God hears him or he feels depressed, yet he's a God, a person after God's own heart. And, you know, Elijah was deeply depressed at times and, you know, questioned his own belief. And so, I mean, it, it, we have mythologized these characters in the Bible to a point that they're not even real human mm. humans anymore, and we miss their frailties. Uh, and the reality is is that this is a broken world, and we suffer, and some of us are born with biological predispositions that make it more likely we have illnesses. Some of us are exposed to traumas and toxins and brain injuries that make it more likely. And, and, then, some, and then most, if not you know, the majority, are a combination of the two. And uh, we would never say the things that we say to people with mental health problems, such as, you know, your depression is a sin or your depression is because you don't believe the, uh, the right thing or, or correctly. We would never say that to somebody who had a, what we considered a physical illness like cancer or, or diabetes. And, and I think we just need to be consistent in our theology and consistent in our compassion and grace towards people that are suffering. Mm-hmm. And you bring up so many excellent points, and we'll, we'll unpack those as we go uh, through the program over the course of the hour. Um, I, I know for myself, you mentioned David, and I'm so glad that you did. I know for myself, as I read through the Psalms, that, that does strike me. Wow, he's crying out to the Lord. He's he's even kind of confronting the Lord. Wake up, get up, help me. And so that's an encouragement to me, not only that um, even David uh, suffered, but that we can come to the Lord with all of our problems, all of our pain, and he already knows, but we can we can be bold and bring that to him and ask him to help us. Absolutely, and, and you know I think you know I, I much like you promote a 
very holistic approach to care that incorporates a person's faith and, mm-hmm. uh, and their religious beliefs into their treatment. And, and I think that's a wonderful foundation to, you know, from where you can draw hope and, and kind of sustaining grace. Um, and so, you know, you see that in David's life, you see that in Jeremiah's life, you, you see that in a number of the Old Testament saints, you see uh, them deeply you know, struggling. Job, I mean, is a fantastic mm-hmm. example of someone suffering and dealing with both mental distress and physical distress, yet there's no question about Job's faith. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, I, I sometimes imagine that if we, if Job walked into a church today, somebody might say, well, brother, I'm wondering if you're believing in believing right, mm-hmm. you know, and not not recognizing that God himself said this is this is a the you know this is the greatest man of the of those of the east you know and that he did never sin in anything that he said yet he challenges you know and really questions God quite a bit on why I'm suffering where are you why aren't I hearing you uh, you know God's a big boy and he can mm-hmm. take it and, exactly. and that's what a relationship is I mean we have a relationship uh, with God uh, through Christ and and we can bring our pain and our suffering to him and God is way bigger than mental health problems, and mental health problems didn't catch him by surprise. Mm-hmm. He can sustain us uh, through them, uh, and he certainly can use them in our lives to draw us closer to him. Amen. Well, tell us a little bit about the history of the church with respect to helping people with mental illness, because you, your ministry, uh, your research is really kind of tied into um, psychology in the church and mental health in the church. And so what what are the... the um, What's the timeline and kind of the history that lays that foundation for us as believers? Yeah, you know, if you you know if you look in the scriptures and if you really start at the kind of the beginning, even Old Testament, um, you know, the the really there's there's a little bit of reference to people who have mental health problems in there of how they're treated and they're not treated very well. There's a couple of references to people being chained up. Mm-hmm. And, uh, there's a reference in, in Jeremiah, I think it is, that suggests that madmen be chained by the neck and. And there's a lot of pejorative references in the New Testament to people that are ill, kind of negative references, like people calling other people crazy and things like that, just like we do today. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, the reality is I think we've always kind of looked down upon people that uh, had these health problems because we don't really understand them and, they're, and we're afraid of them. But but really the care for the mentally ill began out of the church and um you know, the original hospitals that even existed just for people with physical illnesses uh, were started out of the church. And what's interesting is if you look, um, you know, a great example is the um, the community of Giel, Belgium, which is a, uh, strangely, if you're Catholic, you will know that uh, St. Dymphna is the patron saint of people who are mentally ill. Uh, she was supposed to have been a, a Irish princess that because of some odd family issues, was killed by her father after she escaped to Giel, Belgium. But um, people with family members who had mental health problems in the twelve in the, uh, the 13th century, when they came near her, her where she was buried, their loved ones were said to have been healed. And so people began to bring, uh, at that time, what was thought of as madness, uh, people with madness to Giel, Belgium, and they would leave them there because you know if you can imagine trying to care for a schizophrenic adult in you know the 13th century, uh, you know in, in an agrarian farming community, and it's really not easy to do. So they would leave them there, and the priests and nuns of the church there would try to care for them. And basically, the community stepped up, and uh, even to this day, you know, so from the 13th century to today the people of the community actually take individuals into their own homes and care for them for their entire lives. Mm. 
um, mentally ill people. And so it is, uh, it's is—it's been an incredible example of how the faith communities can step up and really care. And we really, you know, we in the U.S., most of the psychiatry and psychology in the U.S. began as a result of Quaker movements. Uh, the Quakers started the first public psychiatric hospital, the first private psychiatric hospital. They set up a number of retreats uh, or kind of therapeutic communities for the mentally ill because they felt like they weren't being treated the way they should be treated. And at that time, there was no treatment where people could get better. They just weren't even being cared for. They're being chained up and things like that in warehouses, basically. So out of their faith, they believed that these people should be cared for because they were God's children. And so really that kind of a movement here in the U.S. began as a result of some Quakers um, and, you know, so there is a real history of the church caring for people with mental health problems. And then somewhere in the 50s to 60s, when we actually started to get some real treatments for mental health problems, um, the church kind of stepped away. And, uh, and I guess we just kind of allowed the world to kind of take mm. that over. And, uh, and then there was kind of an anti-psychiatry movement that was in the that began in the secular world but kind of moved into the church in the 70s. And now what you have is a real division where um, you either have churches that are kind of against mental health problems and they feel like you should that, that it's a spiritual issue and you should never go to a mental health care provider. And our research shows that's about 30% of churches. And then you have a, the rest of the churches just don't have a clue what they're supposed to do. They, mm. they kind of like to help, but they don't really know if they can. And I think a, a disturbing statistic is that, in the context of all that, is that people in psychological distress in the United States are more likely to go to a, a clergy member before they go to a mental health care provider or physician. Uh, and that's a statistic that is for anyone in the general population. It's a statistic that's been found by the by these large federal surveys. So when people are in psychological distress and they're struggling with these mental health problems, they're most likely to go to a clergy. The problem is we haven't really equipped clergy on how to deal with that and what they should do. Mm -hmm. So what would you recommend in terms of equipping the church? Um, I think this is a a critical uh, question here. Um, What can the church do, uh, knowing that the majority of people are going to seek their pastor as their their first um, person when, when they have a mental health concern? Uh, more likely than going to their doctor or a psychiatrist, um, and yet the church is not adequately equipped as as a collective. Uh, there might be individual churches that are doing an excellent job. So, what would be the role of the of the modern church in helping people with mental illness, and how do we equip them? That's a great question, and I, and I think you're right to to state there are some churches out there that are doing a great job, individual churches, but mm-hmm. as a as a whole, there's no systematic kind of approach. Um, you know, one of the disturbing statistics here in the U.S. is that the majority of people, you know, 60% of people with a diagnosed mental health problem receive no treatment. Mm-hmm. So the majority of people that are ill with these Ill- with these disorders, the, the system that's been set up to care for them simply does not even engage them. They, they never receive treatment. Now, treatment works. I'm not saying treatment doesn't work. I'm saying the system that provides the treatment mm-hmm. doesn't work. And, and I think this is the positive uh, and really exciting part of this, and that is that I really honestly believe uh, professionally that the church faith communities are the answer to the mental health crisis that we have, because we have 
this unbelievable statistic, which in my opinion, as a believer myself, is a is a divine opportunity, and that is God is sending people with these problems to faith communities first. And so very simple training can be done. We have a program through the Hope and Healing Center called Mental Health 101 where we train clergy how to recognize mental health care problems, how to make a proper referral to a mental health care provider, and then how to set up restorative programs and, and systems within their faith community where those individuals can come back and, and be cared for and, and individuals can walk along with them and they can recover and become a, a you know a contributing part of that fellowship. So fairly simple uh, really low-cost to no-cost approach to where individuals are trained to recognize mental health care problems, connected to the mental health care system so they can make a referral, and then some supportive services that are peer-led, support groups, mental health coaching, things like that, are available right there at the faith community. So in essence, the front door of the mental health care system is right at the end of the, your block. Mm-hmm. It's your church. Uh, it's a place you are already safe and feel comfortable going. There's no stigma associated with that. And you can get some level of service right there at no cost or low cost. And so, I mean, that's our thought, and, and that's a, something that we've been doing in the Houston area is trying to engage faith communities in this training to see if we can make an, have an increase in, in access to care, which will ultimately hopefully lead to a reduction in hospitalization. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, we ought to join forces. I offer similar training um, as well, um, and I call it Mental Health 101 as well. And right. so just the importance of uh, teaching uh, everyone to recognize uh, signs of a mental health problem. Uh, people are more likely to encounter someone in a mental health crisis uh, than they are having a heart attack, and yet more people are trained in CPR than they are in um, mental health first aid, as uh, one curriculum is called, but just being that Uh, immediate responder when someone's in a mental health crisis and probably just as important, more important, recognizing the signs to intervene and and connect them to help and services before they go into crisis. So so critically important. One of the significant problems that we have with mental health issues that we don't have with other problems is the stigma and shame Mm -hmm. that's associated with them. You, You know, you there was a time when there was a stigma associated with cancer, but there certainly isn't that now. If you tell someone you have cancer, they feel compassion for you. They want to help you. They want even they know nothing about cancer, but they want to connect and help. You tell someone you have bipolar disorder, and they're afraid you're going to kill them mm. because there's misconceptions of what these illnesses are. So you, you bring up a good point. I mean, I think the ways that we have and, and that stigma has to be overcome. Mm-hmm. And I think a problem that we have had is that all of our anti-stigma approaches have been uh, uh, really focused on the people that are stigmatized. It's it's been an approach to try to tell the people that are being stigmatized that it's okay for them to talk about what's wrong with them. And the reality is I don't think you put the impetus for getting rid of the stigma and shame on the people that are being stigmatized and shamed. We, We need to look at this more generationally, and I think you bring up a good point. One of the ways I think that we can do that is right now we require an enormous number of people in our population and in our society to take CPR training. Uh, lifeguards, teachers, you know, I mean, there's all kind of people that have to have that training uh, to get certain jobs. Um, we need to do the same thing for suicide prevention and, and de-escalation of conflict. Mm-hmm. It's a very, I mean, you probably do the training yourself. It's a very simple training. 
uh, people are very interested in it. We need to require that for everyone that has to do CPR. They need to get that same training because that then causes people to begin to have a normalizing conversation about these issues that these are things you're going to encounter. I think another way we can overcome stigma uh, is uh, we need us in our fourth and fifth grade science textbooks and schools across this country, we need to have chapters on psychology and neuroscience, and we need to have discussions about the brain, and we need to have discussions about the illnesses that affect the brain. I mean, my son is in the fifth grade, and he was doing a chapter on the body, and there were discussions in there on cancer and diabetes, but there was no discussion of anything related to the brain. Mm-hmm. So if we can have fourth and fifth grade children starting to understand the brain is an organ that can be damaged, you can have a disorder, you can be treated, you can be better, uh, I think we begin to get rid of that stigma and shame. And I think if we train people to effectively intervene when people are in crisis, I think they become less fearful and they become more likely to act. Uh, I mean, I've done CPR. I've worked in an ER for a long time, but I've done CPR on a lot of people, and it's a frightening experience. Mm-hmm. But if you're trained to do it, you feel like you can do it and you can help. Uh, and I think it's the same thing if we teach people about suicide prevention and de-escalation of conflict situations. Absolutely. That that training empowers us uh, to actually be proactive and, and to, to take responsibility to say, um, I'm not going to wait for someone else to do something or stigmatize this person and be afraid and run away. I'm capable of helping and intervening, even if that means simply connecting them to a professional who who can help. Um, such important points. Thank you so much for sharing all of that. Um, we know that um, with with pastors being um, those the people most likely uh, to um, for someone to approach who's having uh, issues and distress um, is is the same the the training that you're recommending for the general public would that be the same for pastors or would there be another level of training for them? Yeah, you know, the the training we do and the training that I, that I really recommend is a little bit different in that, um, you know, the, the thing that's different about the, the clergy and, and about a faith community is that what we find is if someone engages a faith community for care, for help, and that faith community offers them some assistance, even if it's just a referral and they're able to get help, they're then likely to engage that faith community as a place that they're going to want to come back mm-hmm. to and try to be long-term. And so the training that we offer is kind of kind of both front end and long term in the sense that, you know, how how can this faith community care for this individual and the needs they have within a spiritual context? Um, you know, not necessarily. You know, you don't want to set up a separate system for them. You want them to be part of your your faith community, your spiritual life. And so, you know, it, it incorporates you know faith based Bible study or faith based support groups or things like that. And mm-hmm. so. It's a little bit different. I think one of the things that's been important, I mean, the government tried to do a mental health first aid training with pastors many years ago. And mental health first aid, as you know, but your your listeners might not know, it's about an eight-hour training, just kind of a general training on mental illness and mental health. And uh, some countries in Europe, everyone, the whole population is trained mm. on that. Um, but it's long, and it's pretty general. And I think what they found, they found a couple of things. Number one, you can't just go into a community and say, hey, all you pastors get together one day, and we'll train you. That doesn't work well. I think the other thing is is that you have to put it in the language in the context of faith. Mm. I mean, faith communities are places that people go for spiritual care and comfort. We've lost, you know, in this modern society, we've lost the idea that the, you know, that the church is the place kind of for everything. In the old 
the old parish church had the parish nurse and all the, I mean, you went there mm-hmm. for everything. Mm-hmm. And we've lost that, you know, so people, when they go there, they go there for, and, and, and the people that lead them see everything in a spiritual context. Um, and so we have to put what we're doing in a spiritual context for them. And so that's the training. The training has been altered in that way. But also we have to give them tools that they can use long-term, not just that short-term referral, because what happens when that person comes back Mm -hmm. uh, and how are they going to connect? And then how can they equip their congregation? I think it's very important that clergy equip congregation members to walk along with people, to be able to show grace, uh, you know, to care for people that are suffering. Um, I think if we just try to have the guy at the top be kind of the hired mercenary that's going to deal with it all, it's all going to fall apart. So I think these are great opportunities to engage the the congregation. And so we really help them kind of understand how they can equip their congregation to be active listeners mm-hmm. and to engage people emotionally and validate emotions and feelings and things like that. Yes, absolutely. Uh, you're listening to Dr. Matthew Stanford, a psychologist, and we are talking about psychology in the church, mental health in the church, and what we can do to be um, a comfort to those in need in every aspect, what the church can do to provide holistic spiritual care and comfort um, and equipping the saints um, to provide that care. That's the mission of my church, equipping the saints to do the work of the ministry. We're talking with Dr. Stanford. Stay with us. One needs to look no further than today's headlines to understand the threats facing American schools. They remain soft targets for violent threats, and yet our schools go largely underprepared. Our children deserve the highest level of education in the safest learning environment possible. The SSI Guardian QAL, or Quick Action Lockdown, is the fastest and safest way to lock down a classroom. This revolutionary device provides schools with maximum locking protection while meeting all safety, fire, and building codes. Designed by the leading lock experts in the world, the QAL is the only lock that meets Department of Homeland Security primer recommendations. SSI Guardian QAL now makes classroom lockdowns fast and safe with the red button. As a parent, you have every right to demand that your child is afforded the best classroom protection. Take action today by calling SSI Guardian at 877-878-5800 or go to guardianprotect.com. That's guardianprotect.com. With SRN News, I'm Ron DeRockstra. A Christmas Eve mass in northern Iraq providing holiday cheer, but also reminders of the war still raging against the Islamic State group. 300 Christians braved rain and wind to attend the ceremony in their hometown of Bartella, where ISIS extremists seized the town in August of 2014 and torched the church. But volunteers cleaned it up after government forces recaptured the city. Forecasters are cautioning drivers in the northern plains and some western states to keep alternate routes in mind and prepare for possible delays. A large stretch of the Dakotas is under a blizzard warning, not only for Sunday, but also Monday, with the National Weather Service forecasting heavy snow and strong winds. Parts of central Minnesota also under an ice storm warning, while snow is also forecast for much of Idaho, Montana, Utah, and northeast Colorado. This is SRN News. Renting in Denver? Denver rents have consistently gone up in 014, 15, and through today. Can you imagine how high your rents will be next year? You already know this, but you've struggled to save $10,000, $20,000 or more in down payment to buy your own home. 
I'm Brian Murphy, owner of Front Range Mortgage, and I may have your ticket out of renting and into a home of your own. We are proud to announce our new 1% down payment purchase program that can get you out of your landlord's pocket and into your own home. 1% down payment equals $3,000 to get you into a $300,000 home. That's $3,000 to own your own home. Call me and my local Colorado-only team for a painless five-minute conversation to see how quickly we can get you into your own home with a mere 1% down payment. Our number, 303-500-1900. That's 303-500-1900. Or visit frontrangemortgage.com. And MLS 378844, regulated by the Division of Real Estate. How would you like to pay less than $100 for an entire year's worth of oil changes? Check out ExperienceProsDeals.com because for a limited time only, Pride Auto Care is offering a full year of premium oil changes and tire rotation for 50% off. That's right, a whole year of oil changes and tire rotations for 50% off, less than $100. Pride Auto Care has convenient locations in Parker, Centennial, and Littleton. Colorado family owned and operated for over 25 years. Honest service and happy customers, they take pride in your ride. Check out ExperienceProsDeals.com and click on Pride Auto Care where you can get a full year of oil changes and tire rotation for only 85 bucks. That includes five quarts of premium synthetic blend motor oil, oil filter, lube, tire rotation, and complete maintenance. Oil changes for a whole year at 50% off. Brought to you by Pride Auto Care. Visit experiencepros.deals.com today while supplies last. To learn more about living well with Dr. Pegg, visit drpegradio.com. And now, Dr. Peggy Mitchell-Clark. Welcome back, everyone. My guest today is psychologist Dr. Matthew Stanford, and he's an expert in the church and mental health. I think we're kindred spirits as well, Dr. Stanford. Uh, So many of the things that you've been talking about are uh, my passion and my mission. And again, one of the reasons I have this program is so that we can educate the public, reduce stigma around mental illness and the role of psychology alongside uh, the church. Uh, So let's talk a little bit, uh, Dr. Stanford, about uh, body, mind, and spirit. And you've kind of alluded to that in terms of uh, ways to reduce stigmas, educating people that, yeah, we we are spiritual beings and we also have this physical body. Um, and uh, so we're body, mind, and spirit. How does psychology, knowledge of psychology, work in harmony with that biblical concept? Yeah, actually, you know, there's quite a bit of work. I would say, first off, at this point in time, uh, the world of psychiatry and psychiatry, the secular world of psychiatry and psychology have never been more open Mm -hmm. to spiritual uh, issues and faith issues than they are now. I mean, there is an enormous amount of research that's done every day now showing the health benefits of being involved in the faith community or Mm -hmm. having faith. There's no question that people that are actively involved in faith communities and that they believe and that their faith is an important part of their life, that they see it as an important part of their life, are more physically healthy and more mentally healthy. Now, again, that does not mean that just because you go to church you won't ever have a mental health problem, but on average, people tend to be more healthy. Some of that's because they adopt more healthy behaviors, but there's a there's a, a psychological aspect to that that that's really people haven't been able to tease apart yet. And so there's a lot of work done and, and you know most and one of the things I do, another part of my research is trying to help secular psychologists and psychiatrists understand how to better engage their 
client's spirituality or faith in the environment, the, the therapeutic environment. Because usually we're not trained to do that unless we go to a specialized program. So we've developed tools to help them do that. And I regularly have groups of psychologists and psychiatrists call me in to do training to help them affirm and, and kind of build up their client's faith. So one of the things that we can dismiss is this myth that, you know, a Christian is going to go off to a therapist or a psychiatrist and they're going to kind of undermine their faith somehow, because if they do do that, they're not a good psychiatrist or a psychologist, because the reality is most of them are looking to affirm everyone's faith. Um, you know, I think as far as body, mind, spirit goes, I tend to say body, uh, spiritual, mental, physical, and relational. Mm. I kind of look at that from uh, Luke 2.52. It says Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. Mm. I kind of see these kind of four aspects. I mean, I, I don't know that we can differentiate them. I think they're all such a unity. But I do think God made us multi-part complex being. And I think the thing that's important when we're treating someone with a mental health problem, or really any problem, is that we engage them at all levels mm-hmm. of their being. Um, I think in, in Christianity, we've really gotten lazy, and we kind of think of ourselves as solely spiritual beings, and we forget that God made us physical. And so our physical body is just as important to God as our spiritual aspect, uh, because he made us that way. Mm-hmm. And so we're in this kind of complex unity. And if I only talk to a person about their spiritual life, and they're struggling with a problem that's affecting them at all levels of their being, I'm only going to get some limited relief. Just like if I only give them medication, but they're affected at, in their mental life, they're affecting in these other areas of their life. So I need to engage them holistically. And I know you you promote that approach. And I just think it's a it's such a, a more effective approach. It, uh, it gives you a lot more tools to work with. I think people are more comfortable with it. Uh, and, uh, you know, I find that most people, when they do seek out some kind of help for distress, they want to talk about their faith because that's where they find a lot of strength and a lot of foundation for trying to recover. Exactly. Um, and, and it really is so one-sided. And, and we see the fruit of that um, I think in our society, our culture, and certainly it's reflected in the church as well, in the body of Christ, where um, we might have someone that we would consider a man of God, woman of God, or quote-unquote spiritual giant, but we see um, them out of balance in other areas of their, of their lives, maybe in their in their uh, wellness, just uh, in terms of eating well and, and exercising and staying connected to others. Um, and as you said, building their relationships out, out in their family. <laughs> they might be inside the church whenever the doors are open, as the expression goes, but their family is falling apart. So we see them out of balance. Uh, we also know scripture says, beloved, I, I pray that you would be in good health and prosper, even as your soul prospers. The scripture says, above all. So those things are important to God. Uh, and so body, body, mind, spirit, or spiritual, mental, physical, relational, as you put it, is so critically important. Um, there's research that shows um, the, the value and, and effectiveness of prayer specifically. Um, as you've said, that any, any good mental health provider um, knows that um, the evidence shows, and, and we use the expression evidence-based practices, that, that prayer and um, the, being uh, connected to your spirituality are all important. So, so it's easy to reconcile psychological concepts with the word, isn't it? Absolutely, absolutely. And I, you know, I think the 
if any study that's ever been done that looked at how people that typically terminally ill patients or patients that are dealing with life-threatening illnesses, how they deal with their stress, that always the number one way they deal with that is prayer. Mm-hmm. And it's something that we tend to not teach clinicians how to engage their clients in that context. Mm-hmm. Uh, but prayer is extremely important and extremely therapeutic. Um, and, you know, and and really does have a, you know, kind of a, a life-altering kind of, not just a spiritual altering, mm-hmm. but a physically offering, altering aspect to it. You know, when Paul talks about renewing your mind in Romans, I mean, I really, you know, I, I see that very much both in a, in a physical and a spiritual way. I mean, he's talking about as you become more dependent on the indwelling Holy Spirit to, to guide your thoughts and behaviors, then your mind is changed, and as your mind is changed, it alters your behavior. And really what we're talking about there is your brain. You're talking about mm-hmm. a bridge between the immaterial and the material. Uh, and back to, you know, talking about wellness and a physical being, I mean, the scriptures are full. I mean, the, even the dietary laws that mm. we tend to think of in a very mm. spiritual way, which they certainly had a spiritual context to them about purity and cleanliness, many of them are kind of, you know, thoughts that God is giving to the people to keep them healthy, physically healthy. You know, don't eat shellfish. Don't eat these things that, you know, don't go with this type of animal because they have certain types of diseases and things like that. I mean, the physical body is discussed throughout the scriptures, uh, but we've kind of lost that. We, mm-hmm. we kind of have this sense that we're just this spirit kind of trapped in this body. But as I've told many people, many presentations I've given, you know, if you read to the end there, we get this back. We get this body back. <laughs> and uh, this is it. I mean, this is the body. Mm-hmm. You know, it's going to be fixed and glorified and all that. But but this is probably what it looks like, because the disciples certainly recognized Jesus when they saw him mm-hmm. after he rose. And mm-hmm. so there was no question. And that body had scars on it and wounds and so, you know, I, I wouldn't doubt that the, you know, the scar I have on my knee from where I fell off my bike <laughs> when I was young is probably still going to be there. Mm. Um, but, uh, you know, so there's nothing wrong with, with the physical. We, we have to remember that God made that, and God's going to interact with us in a very physical way, much more so than he does now, at, you know, once we're in glory mm-hmm. with him. Uh, and when people are struggling now in a physical way, it's just because of a fallen world that we're in, and mm-hmm. God has provided physical remedies, and those are his provision uh, for us to uh, alleviate some of our suffering. Mm-hmm. And if all good things come from the Lord and, and wisdom, um, we have um, scientific knowledge that we can apply for our physical and mental health, and that does come from God. It, it's not that that kind of popped up in a vacuum, <laughs> and so he does care about our physical body. I heard a, a teaching uh, on um, renewing our minds that said that um, renewing our minds is like opening up a valve that really allows the Holy Spirit to flow um, from our new nature, because spiritually we're new. Um, and so renewing our minds opens the valve to, to let the Holy Spirit flow and impact our body and the world around us. So uh, we can release our healing. We can we can release power, resurrection power and apply it in our lives, in, in our physical well-being and the world around us. And so, again, really, we, it doesn't make sense to segregate um, body, mind, spirit, and psychology and natural knowledge and science from spiritual knowledge, does it? No, not at all. And I think, you know, most counseling principles, if you just look at counseling, 
uh, are very biblical. Mm-hmm. I mean, and you know, and so, um, and even in the context of sanctification, the idea of being transformed into the image of Christ. I mean, that is not all fully described in a spiritual context. I mean, that is, we are transformed spiritually completely when we come to know the Lord. Mm-hmm. But our transformation, our continued sanctification and continued transformation is our mental life and our physical life. And so, you know, I, the, you know God wants to completely change us wholly, our whole body mm-hmm. and, and our whole mind. And so he has chosen to only do it spiritually right now and then progressively the rest of it. But that progression is important for our relationship with him in some way. Uh, and so, you know, we should be open to that. We should kind of stop ignoring the fact that if he wants to keep changing our mind, we don't have a mind without a brain. I mean, I, you know, I, I believe in an immaterial mind, but somehow it's linked to our brain. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it affects our brain, and our brain affects it. And so if our mind is renewed, then I know our brain has changed, and mm-hmm. our brain has changed, and I know our behavior has changed. And we, we can back that up with science, that as we Absolutely. change our thoughts, neurotransmitters are released that then impact our, our brain and our body and our behavior and our emotions. So it really is all connected. Um, we only have a, about a minute before we have to go to, to break, and um, I want you to at least start talking about the role of hope and grace. Uh, you write extensively about that in your, uh, in your research. Um, what, what role does hope and grace play alongside of prayer and alongside of renewing our minds? Well, I think probably the greatest tool, therapeutic tool, that the Church has for people that are struggling with mental health problems, is hope. And then that is a hope that transcends circumstances. Mm-hmm. That is not offered anywhere else in any other way. I mean, we have a hope that whether you get better from your mental health problem or you fully recover, that transcends that event. And we have a hope that will tell you that God will literally walk along with you and mm-hmm. empower you through that uh, that event that he will be with you, that he will suffer with you, that he will always and never leave you, and so it's uh, you know it is a hope. I think is the greatest thing we as a as a people of God have to offer. Amen, amen. <laughs> I, I feel uh, inspired just hearing you uh, share that. Uh, when we come back, uh, Dr. Matthew Stanford will talk more about the role that biology plays in mental illness and sin. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Schools can no longer afford not to invest in a professional, evidence-based, advanced safety education training program. It's the single most important decision and investment a school administrator will ever make in their professional career. When all else fails, training and preparation are the only things that will increase your chances of survival in a violent incident such as an active shooter or active terrorism. SSI Guardian has set the new standard in advanced safety education by providing evidence-based, advanced training programs tailored to your needs. While there are many basic training programs largely based on opinion and Emotion. SSI Guardian is the only advanced training program of its type with an accredited continuing education unit or CEU issued by an accredited university. SSI Guardian has set the new standard in advanced safety education by providing evidence-based advanced training and solutions to learning institutions, faith-based and professional organizations. To learn more, call SSI Guardian today at 877-878-5800 or visit guardianprotect.com. To learn more about living well with Dr. Peg, visit drpegradio.com. And now, 
with Dr. Peggy Mitchell-Clark. Welcome back, Dr. Stanford. Uh, thank you so much for being my guest today. Uh, before we get into talking about biology and our brains and the role that they play in mental illness as well as sin, sinful behavior, um, tell the listeners how they can learn more about your professional work in Houston. Yeah, if you could go to our website, which is uh, just uh, org. It's Hope and Healing Center altogether, and it describes everything that we do there. We offer mental health services, but we offer also offer a lot of programs for the community to kind of raise awareness and reduce stigma related to these issues. And then also a lot of training of uh, particularly faith communities on how they can become more involved in uh, mental health-related issues and how they can better serve those in their, in their communities that are struggling with these problems. Excellent. And I'll have a link uh, to your website from my website at drpegradio.com so listeners can uh, see more about what you're offering out there. Well, let's go ahead and talk about uh, biology in our brains. And, and you have a book called The Biology of Sin, Grace, Hope, and Healing for Those Who Feel Trapped. And let's talk about uh, the, the biological component of first sinful behaviors, and then we'll talk also about mental illness, which we've already alluded to. Yeah, well, that, that book actually came out of the fact that I'd written another book that was about mental health problems, and whenever I would be talking to pastors, and I've interviewed hundreds of pastors, you know, for these different writings, they would always bring up sinful behavior, and, and you know, sinful behavior, you know, sinful behaviors like addiction or a rage or homosexuality, behaviors that the Bible says are sinful, but that clearly a lot of scientific work is done around, and then there have you know, biological aspects of that have been found. Now, one of the things that that all people have to understand is that we are at least partly a biological being. We all have a body. I've never met someone <laughs> who didn't. And so we don't usually like our body, but we have one. And no matter what you do, from brushing your teeth in the morning to having a deep, intimate, you know, conversation at night with somebody – there is a biological component to the behavior that you are expressing. There has to be, because your part of you is biological. So to think about behavior in solely a spiritual sense or a kind of ethereal, mental, immaterial way, I mean, there certainly are aspects of that in your behavior, but it forgets the biological. So biological, the biology of sin came out of discussions I was having with pastors that basically would equate, you know, any behavior that was sinful was just a spiritual issue uh, and that there was no biological. So how do we reconcile the fact that there are biological aspects to our uh, behavior, even sinful behavior, and our faith? You know, are you culpable for your behavior if you're born with a predisposition that makes it more likely that, say, for instance, you'll show rage? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I would say absolutely you are, because we are we are conceived in sin. You know, we're born into a sinful world. Uh, our bodies are broken. Our spirits are broken when we're born. We are dead in our sin. I mean, we still have a spirit. We're just disconnected from God. So, I mean, that shouldn't surprise anybody. And, you know, the fact that I get sick, you know, any illness is because of sin in the world that, that we have. The fact that my father died from a heart problem is because of original sin, mm-hmm. you know, a broken world. So it shouldn't surprise someone that we could be born with a predilection to sin or a predilection towards some type of illness. And, um, in fact, we, it should shock us if we aren't. 
you know, if we're born, you know, we're born dead in our spirit, but pristine in our biology, hmm. that would, that would, I would think that would be a problem with our theology then. Because, you know, when Adam and Eve fell, it affected them physically. Mm-hmm. In fact, if you read the curse, the curse is virtually all a physical mm-hmm. description. Pain and childbirth, scratching out a living or, or, or trying to survive in the dust and the dirt and trying to graze food. And I mean, there's, there's, there is no spiritual description there. Right. I mean, we know that came earlier when God said you'll die. He was telling them spiritually you're going to die. But he also meant you're going to start aging, you're going to... You know, I'm gonna throw you. You're gonna. I'm gonna put you out, and you know, you're gonna be at the at the whim of the elements here. And so, um, you know, we have to understand that just because something has a biological basis to it doesn't mean it's not a good. It's not a a bad thing. It can right. be a very bad thing. And that's and not just your scientific opinion. That's how God made us as biological beings, <laughs> physical beings. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, I think we forget that. I think mm-hmm. we get. You know, as as someone once said to me, we get so spiritually minded were no earthly good mm-hmm. we're so heavenly minded we're no earthly good mm-hmm. and i think sometimes we really fall into that we get this we're we're only talking about the spiritual and but you know we're we're a unity we're this complex being and you know biological sinful behavior has a biological basis also and sometimes strangely enough even in with psychology psychiatry we can treat people for things like rage outbursts mm-hmm. or addiction from a physical perspective, and we can help them gain control of their sinful behavior. Mm-hmm. And so let's let's kind of um, talk about another angle on the sinful behavior and transition into mental illness, because the two uh, uh, sometimes co-occur. And that would be, uh, you mentioned already, kind of rage, but aggression and violence. We're seeing more and more mass violence, predatory targeted violence, uh, where there's planning and preparation over time, uh, weeks, months, maybe even years. And so what's the role of um, the brain and biology in that behavior? And then when we see mental illness being a contributing factor to some of these um, uh, mass casualty, mass violence events, uh, talk a little bit about um, the brain there, because there there's some people who think it, it's just evil, and perhaps evil is playing a role. Um, but what role does biology and the brain play there as well? No, that's a good question. I think, and then a lot of that, you know, that's a good way to circle back even to the stigma that we talked about mm-hmm. before. So if you if you think about these mass shootings, you know, and, and there has been an increase in mass shootings. Now they are very rare. They're they're you know in the grander context they're actually quite rare. Mm-hmm. But they are, there has been a tremendous increase over the last few years of what we think of these kind of you know a, a person just walking into somewhere and shooting a bunch of people. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, what the data is showing us is that a majority of those individuals either were being treated or were untreated mm-hmm. for mental illness. Uh, so you're lo- Now, as a whole, people with mental health problems or mental illness are no more violent than the general population. But there are these exceptions where people have done this. You know, the gentleman who shot up a theater in Aurora, Colorado, was clearly paranoid schizophrenic. Everyone knew that beforehand. He'd been diagnosed. He was not being treated. So what you have in these instances is you have somebody who, in most instances, is not receiving care. So um, their illness is running out of control. Mm -hmm. They usually are in a delusional state, a lot of paranoia and suspicion, and they begin to build up a kind of what they think are threats against themselves or some greater kind of cause in which they have to act out in, in an attempt to try to make a statement. And so, you know, these things can build up over quite some time. Uh, the, the individual who 
shot the children at Sandy Hook. His mm-hmm. mother had been trying to get him care for over a year uh, and was unable to get him care because of her resources. Uh, and so, you know, that that's a real that's a you know that's a real indictment on the system. But then, if you you know, we also have a, a high prevalence of guns that are easily accessible, which you know, whether you're for guns or not, that's just a fact. Uh, and the reality is if you put a, a, a weapon into somebody's hand who's disinhibited and or has a cause, they can hurt a lot of people. And so we really increase the violence by making those so available. The other type of killing that occurs is an impulsive killing where mm-hmm. the individual has a mental health problem that causes them to lose control of their, their – they get angry and they have no control over their behavior. And a weapon is nearby, so they just act out very quickly. Usually in those instances, not as many people are injured, mm-hmm. uh, and they're not injured as severely. Usually what you're seeing is what you described as kind of a long-term planning. Uh, and you know, But these are clearly – this is a mental health issue. I mean, it is an issue that's affecting our society. Mental health issues affect virtually every societal ill or related to every societal ill we deal with. Problems in education, problems in criminality. Uh, problems with our economy because of lack of uh, ability of people to work, uh, you know, breakdown of uh, families. I mean, mental health cuts, through, they're not, not necessarily the primary issue in every one of those, but it's a big factor in all of those. And we spend literally hundreds of billions of dollars every year on mental health care. And if we were to get this under control, we could we could turn this country around in a way that I don't think anyone's ever seen. Mm-hmm. And so here here we circle back again to what you said earlier that uh, it's a great opportunity for the church uh, to be the first line of defense, the first line of care, the first line of education, the first line of referral and connecting folks, and to have a better understanding of all of the multiple factors involved in mental illness and violence and and other ills that that we face um, as uh, sinful and fallen human beings, um, we could make a difference as the body of Christ, couldn't we? Absolutely. I I really do believe that the Church is the answer to this, and and I think this is the common thread that runs through a lot of these issues. And money isn't going to fix this. We've Mm -hmm. thrown money at this problem for years, probably not at the level we should have, but it didn't make a dent. What's going to fix this is people. Mm-hmm. And, and those are going to be people that have compassion to walk along with broken people uh, and care for them. And, you know, this is a divine opportunity. I mean, mm-hmm. there's nothing else where people, even people that aren't associated with faith communities, go to faith communities first. Mm-hmm. I mean, people with cancer don't go to pastors first. Mm-hmm. You know? So they go, you know, these are believing and non-believing people showing at a, up at a church broken and in distress. And if that isn't a divine opportunity... I don't know what is. So we really need to equip ourselves, uh, and we could have a cultural and societal change by engaging mental health problems that I think would be, you know, on the it would be on the same level of kind of these incredible revivals like the Great Awakening mm-hmm. that we've seen in the past. Amen. Amen. Uh, Dr. Matthew Stanford, thank you so much for bringing your expertise and really elevating um, our conversation about psychology and the church. And I pray that uh, this interview has been a call to action for the body of Christ, that we would take on the charge to equip the saints uh, to provide comfort, to provide care, to provide connection, referral, and intervention. My guest has been Dr. Matthew Stanford, and I'm Dr. Peggy Mitchell-Clark, reminding you to live well.
Thank you for listening to today's episode of Living Well with Dr. Peg, brought to you every week by SSI Guardian. To listen to previous episodes, learn more about Dr. Peg's mental health and safety workshops, or to register for an upcoming VIP personal transformation retreat, visit drpegradio.com. You can also purchase Dr. Peg's books, Do Something Different for a Change, and Doggy Tales, Lessons on Life, Love, and Loss I Learned from My Dog online at drpegradio.com. And remember to join us every Saturday at 1 p.m. on 94.7 KRKS for Living Well with Dr. Peg.